OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. So uh, welcome, everybody. Thank you very much for, uh, for joining us. Uh, we are at OPN's Ask an Angel, and we're very excited today to be chatting with Emmett because... One, he's up in the big smoke, or just beyond the big smoke, I guess, if you will, but in the U.S. and in San Fran. And we love talking to people out in San Fran because you guys have a whole different ecosystem on how the world works when it comes to big tech. And Toronto, we kind of like love what they're doing out there. And we try to like mirror as much as we can in the rest of the world and keep building up our ecosystem. But we love to see what, what the action is out in uh, the San Fran and the even New York model is really booming as well, right? It's uh, it's kind of the next second best epicenter of, uh, of the United States. Um, and then following on with Chicago and, and uh, even Texas and all these other great states. So a lot of exciting movement. But Emmett, thank you very much for joining us today. And I think uh, the way we want to start is if you could give us a little bit of a background on yourself, kind of where you've come from, what you've been up to, and then what you're doing today. And then just one thing about yourself that nobody would know. Sure thing. Uh, well, JP, thank you very much for having me. And um, I think uh, Toronto, yes, it is not as big of an ecosystem as Silicon Valley, but you guys have a pretty awesome ecosystem there. I've invested in Toronto. I've been there a few times. Um, I think you are very collaborative and very supportive and are cooking up great companies. Uh, Shopify being one example, but there's many others. Um, so about myself, uh, I have 20 years in Silicon Valley. Uh, well, that's not quite correct. Uh, two of those were in Boston, which is another great ecosystem, but the rest has been here in Silicon Valley. Um, I've worked at three different VC funds, uh, this being the third one, uh, which is my own fund, which I started called Tau Ventures. Um, but I started my career at Google as a product manager uh, I did go to school here. Um, I did my undergraduate and master's degree at Stanford in computer science and bio for undergrad, and then biomedical informatics, which is at the intersection of those two for my master's. Uh, at some point, I did go to business school. Don't hold that against me. Um, in Boston. And um, the three funds that I worked for included one that's a very large fund, uh, Norvis Ventures, uh, $10 billion under management. Uh, I worked for Fund 11. Uh, I joined there almost a decade ago. Um, the other one I worked for is Samsung Next Ventures, which is a $150 million fund, um, early stage. And in between, I was a co-founder of Health IQ, uh, which is a company helping you make better decisions around diet and fitness. Uh, that company has gone on to raise now $140 million in venture capital and is doing well, uh, $450 million latest valuation. This is all public, by the way. Um, but what I'm most excited about is what I'm doing today, which is Tao Ventures. I started this fund with an ex-colleague of mine from Norwest, uh, and it is uh, just about a year and a half old. We have done 14 investments. Uh, there's a couple more that we are closing right now as I speak, so um, maybe by the end of the year, we'll have 16, 17. And um, we focus on applied AI, artificial intelligence, uh, focus on three verticals, digital health, enterprise, and automation. Um, in digital health, we have investments including computer vision to detect colon cancer. It's called iterative scopes. We have uh, machine learning to detect sequences, biomarkers, that you can then develop antibodies 
against COVID and cancer. That's a company called Potient. We have a company that looks at drugs and dogs and figures out what type of drug works best for what kind of cancer in dogs uh, called Phytocure and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And in enterprise, we have a couple of companies focused on cybersecurity, protecting your personal information in social media. And then in automation, we have a robot to make smoothies, a robot to peel potatoes, chop your vegetables. So anyways, I'd be glad to share more about Tao, but to finalize your question, uh, something people wouldn't know about me, at least right away, um, I'm born and raised in Brazil. It's not obvious from the name, from the face, and from the accent. Uh, and my family is from India. I subscribe to all three countries. I have citizenships from all three. Um, for India, it's an overseas citizen. And um, yeah, I feel like a global citizen, but those three are my my, my triangle, the, the core triangle I operate in. Oh, that's amazing. And great background, great story. Love what you guys are doing. A lot of great things uh, uh, with the investment side you've made. Um, I love the name of the company. Uh, do you want to give us a little bit of a breakdown on how you came up with Tau and what was the reason that you chose to go with Tau versus any other kind of? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, thank you. That, that that tells me that you're a fellow geek, uh, JP. Uh, so Tau is a Greek letter. Uh, it means many things in mathematics, in physics, in biology. Um, I did part of my undergraduate research uh, analyzing protein models and how they misfold and can cause Alzheimer's and tau proteins are implicated in that. Um, but our closest inspiration was uh, the mathematical constant tau equals two times pi. Um, so 3.14 times two is 6.28. So we went to the full extent of what that entails us. We launched the fund on June 28th of 2019. That's when we did our annual event. Um, because here in the US we write month and then we write date. Um, this year we organized our event on three quarters of a Tau um, in October. So you get the point. Um, and uh, Tau is small, it's memorable, it pays a homage to the themes we invest in and the domain name was available, Tau Ventures. So we thought it was a fitting uh, name for, for the fund. I love it. And I do like the uh, uh, two times pi and the, the whole structure behind it. And even the, the, the background on the different formats of how Tau is used. Uh, different spelling, but um, T-A-O, which is Tao drumming, which is Japanese Tao structured of drumming. Um, if you've never seen it, you should check it out because it's probably one of the sickest things I've ever got to watch live. Um, I have actually, I have. I had friends who did it. Um, so you're right. And Taoism is also T-A-O. And yes. um, in, in, in many languages in India, T-A-U means uncle. And it's a slang for you are the big boss. You are, you're cool. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's, it's a, it works in many, many different contexts. Yep. I love it. I and mean, it has the same meaning, I guess, overall too, uh, inspirational and a lot of things that tie into the whole culture. So I think it's pretty cool. So very, very, uh, exciting to hear that. So in, uh, in a lot of the things that you've kind of done. And one of the, the big part that I always like to kind of drive back into is that you carry a lot of experience through your work efforts to kind of get to when you get into venture world and you start making investments into companies. So you build up all of this experience. And one of the things that I think probably um, started you off and gave you a lot of exposure to this was your time in Google. And then from there, you kind of moved into other ventures. You created your own but how much do you feel that the learning that you took from Google really helped you propel you into your own company, the first one, and then now getting into your venture firm? 
Well, I joined Google at a very different time uh, than today, than what the company is today. Um, I joined right out of, out of college, well, technically out of my master's. So I was 22 when I joined and uh, googly eyed, if I may use that expression. Um, so it was just an incredible learning. I'm very, very grateful uh, for the opportunity to have joined Google at that point. It was probably less than a thousand people. Um, I wouldn't say everybody knew everybody, but you had access to everyone and um, company was still private. And uh, I was a product manager, uh, specifically part of a program called the Associate Product Manager Program. And I was the third class to go through that. There have been subsequently another, what is it, 18 more classes. And it's a cohort of folks that uh, Google identified as uh, people who have very technical, could be engineers, but also had broader interests and uh, thrust them in positions of leadership. And essentially my duties were similar to anybody else who had a lot more experience than me um, with the difference that I got a lot more mentorship and uh, I was also given a lot more forgiveness. Um, so I ended up being the product manager for some time on Google Images, for some time on Google Photos. Uh, I was part of the six-person team that did an acquisition that became Google Brazil. Uh, and these are incredible opportunities for a 20-something-year-old. Uh, honestly, uh, looking back, I'm, I'm flabbergasted that uh, they entrusted me with so much responsibility. Uh, it, it, it is really a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Um, and how that shapes the rest of my life is, uh, I think, uh, it obviously gave me a lot of knowledge. It was my first job. Um, it gave me a lot of insight into how a company that is growing by leaps and bounds that is already fairly, of a fairly big size, but that grew enormously. Uh, while I was there, we went from less than a thousand to 25,000 people. Um, and by the time I left, I believe I was 98th percentile in terms of tenure at Google. So 98% of the people had come after me, which is crazy. Um, but it gave me an appreciation for what hypergrowth is, which comes very much in hand when you're looking at startups. That's Google in many ways is the archetype of a startup. It continued growing at a tremendous scale, even after it had gone public. Um, so it is an incredible amount of first-hand experience that I can impart to other startups, including the one that uh, I have co-found with fellow ex-Googlers. Um, so that brings me to the third point. Besides the knowledge and the experience, it's the network. Um, there have been amazing folks who have been through Google who are still at Google, and being connected is like being an alumni uh, of a great university. Um, it's, it's, it's lifelong. It's a relationship that's going to be lifelong. And I think that makes a, a really big difference when you started your own company. And the part that I liked about what you just talked about is the networking component. And I think a lot of startups lack this understanding of, I build it and they're just going to come because I'm great and this is a great product and everybody's going to love it. So how did you take that networking effect, being one person in a thousand and then being part of 25,000 and then the 98 percentile, that's a massive change like, and obviously pretty daunting. But you obviously knew the power of networking and you were able to work your way through, get to learn people. You started your own venture. So in that venture, when you started it off, I'm assuming, did you go in with that? Uh, I'll build it. They're just going to come. Or was there this, I got to get the right people. I've got to connect with the right advisors, work with the right mentors, bring the right developers in. How did you kind of position that business for success? Well, uh, um, the answer is yes. <laughs> um, anything you start, um, there is a component of having a belief, a belief in yourself and in, in being able to figure out the answer. Um, 
because people will join you if they see that you are willing to do everything it takes um, in order to uh, help the business succeed. Uh, everything that's legal, by the way. Um, so uh, I, I think it is a small group of people that ultimately um, pushes forward through a vision and then more and more folks to start coming through to that vision. Uh, and, and I have an old analogy um, um, that, that other people way smarter than me had come up with 30 years ago almost. Uh, it's if you're taking over an island, in the beginning, you need commandos. Um, you know, you need people who uh, are Marines, call them. Like people who do everything it, it, you need to do that have a founder mentality. And, and one person rarely can take over an island. You need a small group of them. So you find a great co-founder and that's where the networking comes in. Um, the very initial group of folks that you that you work with are folks that ideally you have networked, that you have got to know well, that you have perhaps worked together before. The second stage is once you have taken over the island, you you have soldiers, so people who will make sure that uh, you can keep control of the island. Uh, it's a different mentality. It's it's people who come into the Series A and Series B. Uh, they're obviously still fantastic folks, but the character of the company is a little bit different at this point. Um, the odds of success are also different at this point. And then the analogy is that you eventually go into the state into the stage where you need policemen for the island. Uh, policemen are people who are keeping things in order. Um, so it's uh, it's it's when a company maybe Series D or E or has actually gone public. Um, so it's a different mindset, a different skill set. Other folks have explained this in 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 with many other analogies. Uh, I like this one because it 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 makes it very visceral that as a company grows. The, the 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 network that you have within the company also changes in how it behaves, how people relate to each other. And obviously the network that you have built in personally that you bring in to join the company, how you pitch the company also changes. And did you find that when you were building this, and like you said, you were going through these stages, taking over the island and doing the little right things that moved it forward, you're gonna have things you probably did wrong. Was it always an attempt to expand your network? Were you always trying to find new places to pitch, new places to speak to, new environments to get in front of? Um, was that part of the um, corporate structure on what you were getting people to do inside the business or was it only to the top management? How did you kind of get the word out? Like you can do marketing, you can do all those normal things that we all do, but the power of influence, the power of speaking in front of people and getting in front of groups makes a big difference to your business. Is that something that you put into the culture and push it forward as well? Well, um, you bring up a great point, which is, um, should you focus on quantity or quality of network? Um, and that is true whether you're running a venture fund, whether you're running a startup, whether you're part of a corporate, um, at the upper level, middle level, or at an entry level. It's, uh, I think uh, it's a fine balance between quantity and quality. If you have... Uh, a very small network of very high quality, that's great, but uh, you will still be limited uh, in, in how much reach you have. And if you have a huge, huge network, but it's a very brittle network, it's people who barely know who you are, you happen to be connected on them, then it also is going to backfire. So it, it is striking that right balance. Uh, research has shown over and over and over that uh, as human beings, we can maintain X number of relationships that are very meaningful at one given time, most, most of us can maintain a, maybe a group of around 50 close friends, uh, or depends on your definition of close friends. Uh, for some people, that definition is five, one, one close friend, or um, 
but but we have the ability to maintain meaningful relationships with a smaller group. And I call that the first circle. And then there's a second circle. And then there's a third circle and a fourth circle. And what I found is that um, the very first circle, maybe close friends, maybe close colleagues, um, I don't want to call it first degree because you might still be first degree on LinkedIn, but them not being part of that first circle, really. Uh, but the first circle is is the folks that you will interact with the most, that you learn the most, and um, that you want to hang out with after hours, after working hours. The second degree network is 100 times bigger. It's all the people that know the people you know. And the third degree is even much larger. It's exponentially larger. So for a VC, at least, I found that the second and the third degree network, especially the third degree, is, is the most powerful. I need the first degree network. I need the people I know well, obviously, to work with them, to collaborate with them. But I'm more likely to know of an opportunity or to come across something that I haven't thought of myself, not from the people I know, but it's the other people that they know or the people that they, they know. Right, because that's when you discover new things going on that you hadn't come across yourself. So what I encourage to everyone, and myself included, as a good reminder, is that obviously focus on a great first degree network, great inner circle, but don't neglect the other second and third degree effects. Because I have found most of my jobs in my life, not to my first degree or even second degree, but through my third degree. It's somebody told somebody who told somebody. That's brilliant. And, and I the reason why we kind of, we're going down this path is because when you and I had talked originally, we talked about these uh, ways of connecting and the social networks and the growth of, of this area. And I think that in this space of venture capital and startups, there's a lack of understanding of how powerful building a network is to build your company or how powerful a network is to build your venture firm. And you obviously went through this when you were building your original company. You learned this from being in Google, which was starting from nothing and growing its way up. Uh, you started this in your company, and now you've gone into other venture firms. And I'm sure that you probably learned through this experience in the other two venture firms you were in before yours, that they may have not been the social elites. They may not have been very communicative in that space on learning who the second, third degrees were, um, but you're implementing a lot of that into what you're doing today. Um, and that is a big difference from the way venture capital used to work and function. And I think if you take that learning and you say, how do I push this to my startups? Because there's a huge miss here that startups aren't realizing that the more knowledge and the more people they can fit in that first, second, and third circle, the better equipped their business is going to be to survive and grow and have more investors more interested because investors are onto this saying, wait, how big is your network? And we ask those questions at the same time, because when you're doing a search, I want to know that you're everywhere. And is that something that you try to trans uh, position into all of your startups when you're making investments? Yeah, no, that's a very insightful question. Uh, I think the, um, the message here is that there's going to be a small group of people that is invested in your success, but there's going to be a much larger group of folks that are vested in your success. Um, it's going to be your customers. It's going to be your suppliers. It's going to be your... Uh, obviously your employees, but their extended networks themselves. It's going to be um, the the lawyers you're working with, the the accountants you're working with, the HR persons uh, that you might be working with outside of the company, right? So there's all of these stakeholders in your business, and um, you obviously cannot possibly 
interact with all of them at all the time. But as an entrepreneur, you should be aware uh, that there's many, many other folks out there who may know about your company, who may uh, be helpful in some ways. And um, what we try to do with our startups, uh, these are early stage startups, mostly seed stage. Uh, we, we, we try to remind them. Uh, VCs by almost definition are very powerful nodes in an ecosystem because we aggregate a lot of networks, we aggregate a lot of people, we aggregate a lot of knowledge, we're paid to learn in some ways. Um, so we, we encourage all of our entrepreneurs to really, really utilize their VCs well. We, we prefer investing in companies where the VCs are very active rather than passive. You could have a rep, an investor who has a fantastic reputation, but if they're not giving you their time, their attention, then all you're buying is a brand. And look, brands help. Brand open up doors, but then you have to utilize that brand to do something about it. Um, Multi-stage funds coming in into a seed stage, that is usually what happens is they're buying an option value to put more money in in subsequent rounds. And you get the benefit of being able to leverage that brand to open up doors for yourself. We like, especially when it is an investor who will put in their time and open up all these doors for you. Uh, investors are not the only ones that can do that for you. And so we encourage our startups to create newsletters and send out an email once a quarter and update all their stakeholders what's going on. Um, and uh, at the right time, doing publicity, doing PR, at the right time, uh, sharing updates on social media. I mean, we live in a world now where um, access has basically the cost of access is, is zero. We can reach anyone anywhere. Um, but the cost of attention has actually increased. Getting people's attention, their time, uh, their mind share has become more and more expensive because of that. So uh, promoting yourself or publicizing too much is also actually very detrimental. You have to make sure that it's meaningful updates, meaningful asks. And, and when interacting with people, forever entrepreneurs, we, we encourage them to have a very specific ask. Um, leave it open-ended also, but have, I would like to accomplish this with by working and collaborating with you. Uh, because people respond much more to a structured ask rather than to open-ended asks. And what I... I love that. I'm going to throw out one tidbit. My brother calls that first circle the trust circle. And uh, the reason why I like that is because it is you're close, it's five or 50 people, but there's enough trust in that circle that you treat them like gold, they're also feeding it to their networks. And the same thing happens at the second and third levels. So the, the more attention and value you can put into those structures, the more it's going to uh, push out, branch out, to help you bring in more clients in the long run, or at least people to learn about your brand and learn about the growth of it. So I love how you structured those down. And then you mentioned the attention change. And I think this is a, quite a big piece to that networking side, which is you're trying to find meaningful ways to connect with your customer. Uh, you don't want to inundate them with too much information. You want to bring some quality information to them. So what do you find is the best way for a startup to really connect with their audience and build that network? Is it um, multiple touch points at a time? Because now you've got TikTok, you've got every single application out there on social, you've got email, you've got commerce, billboards, you name it. There's a million places to touch somebody. What do you feel is kind of in that early stage for people to get out there and really work that network so they can build up that next cycle of sales, but ensure that they're gonna keep building up and it's gonna build on their ARR or their MRR over time? 
Um, it depends. Uh, there's no single right answer for any one startup, uh, but there are certain principles that, that apply. If you are a consumer-focused company where you and I are end consumers, end users, um, then it is in your interest to have a loudspeaker, to tell as many people as many times as possible about who, what you're doing, right? This is the prototypical consumer companies, Facebook, Google, Snapchat, TikTok, Airbnb, Uber, right? Um, that is actually a minority of companies. Um, there are, I, I would dare say, a lot more companies that are B2B or B2B2C. Um, are you selling, let's say, into hospitals, right? Providers and payers. Uh, in that case, publicizing to everyone doesn't make sense. What you need to make sure is that the stakeholders, uh, the partners, the decision makers uh, on on in within these other institutions know about you and believe in you. So a common strategy for digital health companies is to have key opinion leaders that will endorse the company or that will do pilots with you. Um, maybe you have a, oftentimes you'll have a scientific advisory board or a medical advisory board, right? You'll have credibility around what you're doing so that Maybe you you reel in a small fish, and that small fish helps you get to the bigger fish. Um, that is a typical strategy for many enterprise companies, where you get a small contract so that you can show results and get a larger contract. Um, I have seen the opposite of this too, where companies will deliberately go towards very large uh, contracts from very large corporates, and and it means spending a lot of time within the sales cycle sometimes as much as multiple years, a couple of years. But once you do land that particular contract, then um, you have a windfall in terms of revenues and perhaps uh, staying power. It's very hard to displace you. So if that's the case, if you're operating within the, those constraints, then make sure you map out who are the decision makers and influencers within the corporate that you're uh, trying to partner with. Uh, and I often recommend going both from the top and from the bottom, the, the folks who will be working most closely with you, who will be implementing it, should be the people that you need to have convinced so that they will actually do the work. And the people from the top, meaning the upper management needs to be brought in so that they will approve it, right? So you need to work both those angles if you're using that strategy. So whether it's enterprise, whether it's digital health, whether it's consumer, whether it's focused on large employers, large corporates, or small companies, I think the key thing for any entrepreneur is to recognize, is, is to understand what am I doing, what am I building, who am I selling to, why am I selling to, what are people seeing in it? And the more of that understanding that you have, the better you can craft that message. Um, Marketing for the sake of marketing or PR for the sake of PR are both recipes for disaster. I think they should always be purpose-driven. It's like, why am I doing this? And I like that purpose-driven. It's 100% a good way to focus yourself and figure out where you're trying to go. And using that sales cycle of uh, bringing value to your customer or to your consumer, learning what they really want and then pushing it home. Is there, do you, do you find a lot of value in getting influencers? You've mentioned getting people that are, proficient or bring a lot of value into a space, if it's the keynote or somebody that has that weight for your business, do you recommend influencers? There's a lot of influencer media out there now today. So many platforms that are pushing this and uh, influencers, I, I don't even know what the number was, but uh, over a million followers, there's something like uh, 50,000 people or some crazy number, maybe it was 5 million, I don't know, some crazy number of influencers that really have a lot of impact. Is that something that 
you would help your startups and push them and say, hey, you know what, put this into your plan. It's going to help you move your networks. It's going to help you grow your product uh, positioning. Yeah, so influencers is the term we have uh, been using when it is primarily a consumer company, right? Like influencers, we think of as celebrities or artists. Um, if you are building a music company, you obviously want uh, influencers with influence uh, of musical tastes and of, of music listeners to be part of your um, inner circle, perhaps. Um, we call it key opinion leaders when we're dealing with digital health companies uh, or health companies in general, doctors and scientists. We call them um, experts if we are dealing with, um, let's say, cybersecurity company. You're a cybersecurity expert. You may be a CISO, a chief innovations security officer, um, information and security officer, right? So um, you the terms we use are different depending on the different industry, but what it boils down to is that you are leveraging folks who have uh, credibility in whatever you're building. And I think credibility is very important, especially when your startup doesn't have much credibility, right? You may have some credibility of yourself because of what you have achieved in the past. You could be a very famous founder or you could have been a very famous leader at a corporate. So you will bring some credibility. You'll bring some credibility also through your mission. Uh, I think your ultimate credibility is your own product, if it's a good product. But to hack your way through and to reinforce the message, you absolutely should have credibility, uh, borrow that credibility. And one way that a lot of startups do is by having an advisory board, uh, bring in advisors and give them some equity in the company um, so that they have a, not just a moral uh, or a relationship-based stake, but they have a financial stake in your success. Uh, once again, being invested in your success is a way of being vested in your success. Uh, and you want to maximize that as much as possible. So uh, we did build an advisory board at Health IQ. Uh, we built an advisory board at Tau Ventures. And in general, I say, yeah, absolutely do it. Uh, don't have an advisory board uh, just for the sake of having an advisory board, but have an advisory board for a specific purposes. Maybe you need advice on fundraising that you're not getting necessarily from your investors. Maybe you need more connections. Maybe you need that scientific credibility. Maybe you need um, Shaquille O'Neal to open up doors for a sports company you're building. Like, absolutely, you should have them as much as possible. Investors, advisors, employees, suppliers, like all of these are different groups that you can have affiliated with your startup. This is brilliant. So on the side of credibility, and uh, and again, I love how this is shaping for how startups really have to think about inve how investors are thinking, but also how they need to take care of their business as they go through these stages. Um, and you mentioned there's personal, uh, there's different influencers, but really it comes down to the product can have some influence, but you re really need to build some credibility. And these types of people uh, or these types of groups are going to bring that credibility to your business. How does, how does the, and you mentioned this a little bit before, uh, big brands in venture, they bring some credibility to your brand and your product because they're investing you. How much can a business utilize that? And is there a way to utilize that? Like when you've raised money, everybody knows you post it online and it kind of goes away. But how do you use the credibility that one of my clients is Walmart or one of my uh, investors is Tau Ventures? How do I get the same impact out of those two? Because we all know the brand name of winners, but maybe we don't understand the value that Tao stepped up and put in a million dollars. 
That's pretty impactful. That's more impactful than what Walmart's doing. But how do you bring that synergy back so that startup understands when you're looking for money, you got to go to the right venture firm. You got to go to the right influencers to build your company. You got to get the right advisors on your team and give them some value because that's going to bring a lot of value to you. How do you kind of full circle this so they really understand the value of what's going on here? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, I, I've written about this topic quite a few times in my blog. Uh, I publish it on LinkedIn, which is how we discovered each other. Uh, so uh, for anybody who's listening, if you are more interested, I'm putting a little shameless plug here. Uh, feel free to Good check up. out some of the articles I've written. Uh, and there's many other folks who have written way more eloquently than I have about this topic. But I think what you're asking, JP, is uh, how do you maximize the value that an investor brings to you? Um, and I think brand is one of them. It's not the only one. Uh, a lot of entrepreneurs, I think, uh, I wouldn't say make a mistake, but assume that if I'm getting an investment from so-and-so, that's all I need to think about. Um, the so-and-so may have a great reputation, but they may not have expertise necessarily in what you're doing. They may not have give you the time to actually for you to debate with them, for them to open up doors for you, for them to provide the type of um, mentorship, governance, challenges, right? Like a good investor challenges as entrepreneurs. Um, so I think those two are very important factors to keep in mind also. Um, once again, it is uh, the brand to a certain extent, the reputation, let's call it, the ex specific expertise. And I, and I mean, some of this is, the fund's expertise, but even more so the specific partner who is investing in you. Um, at the end of the day, that person is the one that you're going to be interacting the most with. And you need to have a great working or build a great working relationship with that person. Um, because if think of them as, as, as in, in many ways, uh, more than employees, they're, they're co-owners of the business with you. And, and it's, uh, hard to fire and hire and fire an employee. It's really hard to, even harder to hire fire an investor. <laughs> so uh, make sure you sign up with the good, with folks you want to work with. Uh, so beyond expertise, the third factor I mentioned is giving the time. And then the fourth one is one that I rarely see entrepreneurs uh, probe deeper in is the actual structure of the fund that's investing in you. Um, maybe it's a great fund, but they're out of funds. They're committed fully. And the check that they're writing to you would be a very small one. Uh, they don't have more reserves. Uh, or it could be the opposite. Or it could be the fact that you're raising a seed. You should probably get the money from funds that specialize in the seed because that's what they're focused on. That's what their model is. That's what their expectations are. Uh, just to give an example here, uh, I'm always hesitant of very large funds. You can call them multi-stage funds doing investments that are too early. If you get a million dollars from a billion dollar fund in your seed stage, you suffer or you have the risk of signaling effect. If they don't follow up in the next round, ideally leading the next round, you shot yourself in the foot. Everybody's going to ask, the market's going to ask is, why is that investor who has access to all the inside information not leading the round? Or at least, at least you should get them for pro rata. So it is a double-edged sword. And there's many other second and third degree consequences of a stage mismatch. So I encourage entrepreneurs to think through all of those factors. At the end of the day, you want to work with the investor that will in aggregate do the most and be the most helpful to you. That may or may not be a large investor, that may or may not be a famous investor, that may or may not be uh, a, a 
investor that gives you perhaps the most amount of time. It's a combination of all those factors. And and I, I think you were going with this, so I'll bring up that point at Tau Ventures. We have a little bit of personal brand. Uh, we have a little bit of brand for Tau, but obviously we're a newer fund. We are not a 50-year-old fund that has a 50-year-old history. Uh, so we're building that as we go. What, what we provide especially is we know the domains we're investing in, very specialized fund. We're investing in those three verticals, AI as being the horizontal connecting them. We're both engineers who turned into product managers, who turned into entrepreneurs and investors. Uh, so we've gone through this journey of ourselves um, and we are going to put in the time. Uh, so we, between the knowledge, the expertise and the experience and, and the time that we put in, um, I, you know, I, 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 we have heard from many entrepreneurs that they really appreciate those three things. Uh, uh, oftentimes, far more than than just working with a very well-known fund. Love it, and uh, yeah, that's exactly the direction. You're just opening up these doors, and you're figuring out. You know, we did in this space. This is our thesis. This is how we function, and we're going to bring the most value to your brand and your business by working with us and having us invest in you. And and I, I love all those points. They're uh, they're great. Um, I like the mismatch one. And I think I've had this conversation so many times that people don't realize, but it's also on the raise features too. But on the mismatch is that you may go after the wrong business, have them come in. And then when that next round comes, they have no interest. And all the investors are asking, are they coming back in? Oh, they're not coming in. Ah, maybe I'm not interested. Something must be up. And it, it does, it spoils the whole thing and it, and it can cause uh, a reverse effect. Um, in our case, we like to use the scenario that we don't go past this number. So 10 million is our number. We don't invest past that. So it doesn't matter how many times forward we are a pre-seed and seed. We don't go past that. So it helps the sure. companies that we work with understand that we're going to take you this far. We'll keep reinvesting. But at that point, we have to walk away. And I think that that uh, it, it sounds like um, that's something you have to take in mind when you're building up that ecosystem and you're getting investors for your startup. You have to look at those those parameters as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, a diligence process is as much about the investor getting to know the entrepreneur as for the entrepreneur to get to know the investor and asking all these questions. And I encourage investor, entrepreneurs everywhere um, to get to know their investor, ask hard questions. Uh, here's one other uh, metric that uh, a, an actual metric that can be useful. Ask the investor who else has followed uh, after you invested, right? Like, let's say you're a seed investor who picked up your companies in the series A and the series B. That should be an indication that this investor has made good investments or not, and whether they have built true relationships with other investors who pick up their companies later. Um, so if you're raising a seed or a pre-seed, that is key, is how do you achieving this current milestone, how well does it set up, set you up to achieve the next milestone? I like that. Yep. I can only write so fast. I've got to slow down. Just kidding. All right. That's brilliant. That's good. Um, very cool. Well, uh, I think we've done a nice full circle. We really touched on that whole avenue of what does it take to build a network? How do you work that network? How do you fill everything into buckets and then start tying in everything with investors and around your board. Uh, the only last question I would throw on this is when you are putting together this structure for your board and you mentioned that, you know, give them shares and give them some equity or some value. Uh, what do you think is probably the most appropriate for a startup to look at in doing that? Not so much from 
the investor side, you already know that equity or convertible note, whatever that might work out to. But what do you recommend is a good positioning for, say, a team of three advisors that you're going to bring on? How would you structure that to enable the startup to win? Um, but also, in my motto is the more money you make other people, the more money they're going to make you. So how do you figure out what that looks like um, with those advisor panels? What should you structure it like? Yeah, no, um, great question. And uh, once again, there are principles and frameworks here. There's no right or wrong answer or a definite black and white answer. Um, the, the principles I have are uh, take into account uh, what the advisor is bringing to the table in terms of his or her experience, uh, network, the time that they will put in. Similar questions to what you were asking as an investor. Obviously, the expectations are going to be uh, very different, right? An investor will own a lot more and will ideally spend a lot more time with you. Um, but for an advisor, the framework I have, at least based on our consistent experience in Silicon Valley and uh, many other parts of the US, by the way, we do invest in Canada also, uh, is that an advisor is putting maybe an hour a week. You know, uh, it's not, uh, if it's anything beyond that, then you're looking for a much, much bigger commitment. Uh, an hour a week, or maybe even an hour, a couple of other week, um, you have a quick call or a quick email exchange. Now and then you may meet in person. Um, it's not a heavy-handed advisory agreement. Um, and typically you build an agreement for a couple of years instead of three years or four years or one year. A couple of years seems to be the right fit. Uh, in the Valley, we have uh, the, the most common employment vesting schedule is four years with one-year cliff. Um, so I think of an advisor says, look, two years is the roughly the watermark for you to get to the next milestone, the next stage of fundraising. So create an agreement for two years. Don't have a vesting schedule, or at least if you do, don't have a cliff. Um, if you have a vesting schedule, then have it quarterly rather than monthly. Um, because the advisor is, uh, you should not treat that person as an employee. You should not treat them as an investor. It's a lower level of commitment. Um, and then in terms of how much percentage you give, once again, take into account what they're bringing on the table, but something within 0.1 to 0.5% of the company at the seed state sort of makes sense. Uh, I have a logarithmic scale in my mind, which is as a founder, you should own in the double digits. Um, as a early employee, you should own maybe in the first digits. And as a middle to later stage employee you own in the 0.1% um, range in terms of, of equity. And that's where I'm pegging an advisor, right? It's, it's equivalent to the value that maybe employee number 50 is bringing to the table. Um, obviously, if they're doing more, then you can bump up the equity. Um, and you want to keep it to two years, in my mind, it's the right balance, because there are some advisors who, after some time, may not give you as much time, uh, as much attention, or simply their advice is not as relevant. So if you keep it for too long, it's diminishing returns. You can always renew it. Uh, agreed, and I think with the, the process of, as you're moving quickly, you know, by the time you get to that second year or going into your third year, you're looking for more maybe a growth advisor. You're looking for a different skill set, and maybe you've taken all you could from uh, those initial advisors, so it's always good to replenish get new ideas and get new feedback, but you may want to keep one or two that behind because they still bring a lot of relevance, as you mentioned, and they're going to continue to feel the, uh, fill that funnel and keep bringing you value and vice versa. Absolutely. And, and we've talked a lot here about how entrepreneurs can leverage or can 
learn and can gain. Uh, let me just take the flip side here. Um, I think the best entrepreneurs are those that end up, um, to use a crass analogy here, giving more than taking. Uh, entrepreneurs who are truly collaborative, who truly go out of their way to help uh, their employees, their uh, advisors, their investors. Um, I, I do believe that the universe ends up helping them. Uh, and there's research being published on this also, is that um, people who are actually more helpful or and therefore perceived to be more helpful end up getting more help also. Um, so um, I think we all have this image uh, that sometimes um, the, the the leader of a company is is somebody who is barking down orders and getting his or her way and uh, imposing their will. And there is a certain element of truth to it. But I think the exceptional leaders are those that um, exercise what I call level five leadership that are truly, truly collaborative. It's, hey, it's about us winning the game, not about me. I love it. Uh, yeah, wholeheartedly agree. 100%, 150%, like, 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 or whatever the... If we had this button on uh, Zoom, it would be the like button or the heart button, whatever, but brilliant. Love it. Awesome. Uh, okay. So now we're going to kind of quickly transition. I think we've, uh, like I said, we've gone a long way and that's awesome. Uh, learned a ton. I think that was brilliant. Uh, we're going to jump right into kind of the rapid fire questions, which, um, well, we've answered some of them, but you know what? We're going to redo them just because it's the, the purpose of uh, getting that startup and, and, and mental and understanding where you're coming from. Uh, at Tal Ventures. So first first question, what's your favorite part of investing in startups? Working with the entrepreneurs, no question about it. Um, the, the fundraising process is a means towards an end. Um, talking and debating and sharing and panels, writing, all of that is means to an end. The ultimate thing is making great investments and working with the entrepreneurs to help them succeed. Perfect. Uh, how many companies do you invest in per year? Um, this year we have invested in, I, I think by the end of the year, we'll hit almost 10 new investments, which is aggressive. Um, but normally I would say between my partner and I, we're maybe investing eight new companies. Okay. Once every one or two months. No, and that's great. I find that the averages for an angel investor are looking at two to four, and then investment firms are looking at six to 10. So you guys are perfect. Like, love it. You're at the top peak of, of uh, doing lots of uh, great things. So that's awesome. Well, it does slow down as your portfolio enlarges, JP. And uh, also, we are a first fund in its just beyond the first year, right? So we are going to be exceptionally active. Um, it it uh, it naturally slows down the cadence because then you're working with the portfolio companies. Agreed. Okay. Uh, any verticals that you like to focus on? Uh, so we focus on three, digital health, enterprise, and automation. My partner handles enterprise, given his background. Uh, he knows far more than I do uh, about that vertical. Automation is something that we share between us. We have equal backgrounds. And then I take the lead in digital health. Um, and I do think that uh, digital health is not for the faint of heart. It's it's challenging in many levels. It's um, It has regulation. It has long sales cycles. But it's extremely rewarding because you create value. It's very easy to see what the value you're creating. And uh, I think I don't need to say more in these pandemic times on how necessary it is. 
Um, so I think healthcare is going through a revolution. Um, it was already happening before the pandemic. Uh, with the pandemic, I think we are going to come into a renaissance for how many more, you know, how much more innovation we are going to see in digital health. So I'm doubling down on it. Love it. Do you have any due diligence requirements that you look for before you make a commitment? So things like... Uh, we do not require... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I'll tell you what we do not require. We do not require meeting somebody in person. Uh, we had done investments before the pandemic where we had not met the founder in person, the founders in person. Uh, we had done diligence. We had done a lot of diligence. We got to meet them through video and phone, but we didn't meet them in person. And that is not a requirement for Tau Ventures. In fact, more than half of our investments this year have been uh, new investments where we did not know the founders before have been fully virtual investments. We obviously would love to meet them, but it's not a requirement. Um, what we do require is a, a, is working through the process with us. We um, like to understand why this team, what is their skill sets, what are the gaps, how well would they work with us? And then the other uh, team is technology. What are you building? How are you building it? What is the differentiation? And then the third thing is, how do you go to market since we're doing the, the seed investments and how do you scale this further? So uh, the framework I have here, if you notice, is team technology traction, TTT. I came up with that myself. If anybody likes it, give me credit. <laughs> but um, it's, it's, it's indicative of our diligence process. We, we write uh, pretty extensive deal memos for ourselves. We actually unusually do share them with our entrepreneurs. Once we decide to make an investment, we show them everything we did how we did it, and let them see how we're thinking about things. It's a great way for them to realize everything we thought and also to give us feedback. Um, that is not typical in the VC industry. Love it. Uh, outside of the DD requirements, are there other things that you like to focus on, like outside of the, the paperwork and stuff like that? Is there anything else that you really hone in that you want to make sure uh, lines up to your theories and, and thesis of what you're doing? Uh, AI for us is a horizontal. Um, it's at the same place that maybe mobile was 10, 15 years ago or cloud or internet 20 years ago, right? Uh, it is a tool. Um, in a very near future, nobody's going to say I'm building an AI company. It's going to be understood. Um, so we focus a lot on learning consistently, constantly about the latest that's happening in AI, including what's happening in in Toronto and Montreal, especially. Uh, I think uh, for better or for worse, you guys have done far more in AI per population per capita than I think any other country in the world. Um, and um, we are all, always eager to learn. I mean, this is, um, VC in some ways is, is, is an incredible profession for folks who are inherently curious because you're bombarded by great ideas and great people, and you have to have an inherent curiosity to always try to understand, learn, seek more, ask questions, and go deeper and deeper. Um, so uh, the joke is that VCs are a mile wide and an inch deep. Um, we are trying to be maybe not a mile wide, uh, maybe half a mile wide, but then also half a mile deep. Uh, the, the entrepreneurs will certainly know far more about what they're doing than us, but we want to know different things from them so that it can be a true partnership. Well said. Um, do you like to lead rounds? Yeah, absolutely. We are happy to. Uh, our fund is not big enough yet to lead most rounds. 
If it's a smaller seed, we have the capacity. We also circle with our LPs to be able to increase our check size. Um, what we have found of ourselves so far is more in the position of being the second largest check or being a co-lead, um, but we are certainly open to it. Uh, and, and I'll preempt perhaps a question you have. We are comfortable with any kind of structure, whether it's a convertible, whether it's a safe, whether it's a price round. Um, we Our core strategy is seed, but occasionally we'll look a little bit later, a little bit earlier also. Uh, our average check size is somewhere between 250 to 500, but we can increase that substantially by circling up with our own investors. So in some companies, we have brought in more than two or three X that. Awesome. That's great. And board seats? We got to take board seats? Uh, whether there's a board or not, we like to be involved. At the seat stage, oftentimes there isn't a board. Um, and when there is a board, we do like to be on it. We don't need to have the board seat. Uh, it depends, obviously, on whether we have enough uh, ownership. Uh, but we like to certainly be board observers. And in fact, I have... Of the companies of ours that have boards, uh, I am on the board of all of them, whether it's a board seat or a board observer. Uh, but we have very few companies that have official boards because at this stage, you typically don't. Correct. Okay, cool. Um, awesome. Well, thank you for that. So now we're going to, I have one, I guess, one big question, and then we're going to do a couple little personal things. But uh, the question is, is that um, what we like to dive into is, you know, throughout the time that you've been working in venture world and, and making investments and working with startups, there is always kind of that heartfelt story where, uh, you know, a startup, um, she or he kind of went, maybe they were sinking, the company wasn't going to work, and then they just did something or it was last minute, something happened, and boom, it took off. I'm always looking for kind of that story that give and invigorate people to say, you know what, it's not the easiest thing to do, but you'll find your way, you're going to get there, and here's a startup that did X, Y, and Z. Um, do you have any kind of stories like that you can share that really emphasizes what a startup really has to go through to win? Man, so many. Um, I mean, every single one, <laughs> every single startup that we have invested in or that we've been part of or the one that I started, right? Um, I, 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 Gosh, do I have to pick one story in particular? Uh, let me give you a couple of principles. Uh, one is... Um, I think Vince Lombardi had this quote uh, that uh, victory ultimately doesn't go to the strongest or to the fastest, but ultimately goes to the one who thinks he or she can win, right? So I think there's something to be said about uh, grit and perseverance, resilience. Uh, there's many synonyms to this. Um, the, the, the founding team, especially, but the early team that truly, truly believes that, yes, they can actually uh, succeed are the ones that have a shot at succeeding. Uh, if to start with, you don't think you can succeed or that you will sputter halfway through, you're almost guaranteed to suffer that fate. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Just believing in it is not enough though, because you have to also work hard for it. Um, but belief I think is half of this equation uh, or one third of this equation. The other one third is working hard. And then the other one third is probably um, luck. Uh, honestly, it's luck. Um, but I have had investments in companies where um, they simply ran out of money and continued working for another year without getting paid. They believed in it so much. Uh, I've had a company that ended up being recapped. Well, this was my partner's company that ended up being recapped and um, ended up taking off completely and being sold for billions. 
Um, I have had companies where uh, it didn't take off, where the founder and the CEO ended up fighting with each other and ended up imploding. So ultimately, ultimately, um, a business is a collection of individuals. Yes, you may have other assets. You may have uh, computers and data centers and many other things. But ultimately, ultimately, when you're building a startup, a tech startup, your people are, I would argue, uh, the most scalable, the most uh, important assets that you have. Uh, you could even have the greatest technology in the world, but if you don't have great people, that technology is not going to go anywhere. So um, I hope I answered your question there. Yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> Got to give it a, a nice big focus of a lot of things. And that, that was great. That was good. Thank you. So we're going to kind of shift a little bit to the personal side. Uh, what's your uh, what's your favorite sports team? Uh, I guess that is unquestionably the Brazilian soccer team. Uh, I was born and raised in Brazil. It's uh, I, I I don't think I even have a choice. <laughs> uh, I, I do root for the team at the World Cup, and I um, whether they lose or win, uh, I'm always going to root for them. Well, they do have a few good players on the team. I'm, I'm not going to say that Neymar is not a great player and then like that, but uh, he's pretty good. So you guys do have a lot of uh, players that really top the level of football. So, uh, well, thank you. Uh, yeah, well, I, I will. I will. I'll only say that uh, Brazil is the biggest winner in history. So, <laughs> five World Cup titles. You know, there's nobody else with that track record, and has been through every World Cup. It's the only country that has done that. Um, so yeah, <laughs> a lot of skill there. No, I I'm a big fan. They're uh, they always produce a great football team. So, um, okay, favorite movie and the character that you would play in the movie. Oh boy, do I have to pick one? Yeah, play, um, pick I, two. yeah, whatever works. But movie and character. I seem to like, I seem to like trilogies: uh, Star Wars and Indiana Jones and Back to the Future and. Um, Many of these are movies I grew up with in the 80s and 90s. Um, so um, I, they are very popular choices also. I am sure many other folks would rate these movies pretty high up. Uh, Matrix, uh, whether there's a single character I would like to be, uh, I don't know if there's a single one. Can I be a, a Indiana Jones and a Jedi at the same time? Is that allowed? <laughs> yeah, what, you just have to pick the movie and the character. It's, uh, it all works. Yeah. We've had lots. Sure. I've had some really abstract movies. I couldn't even, I had no idea. So I've got a whole list of movies I got to watch. But yeah, you pick the one that works best. Sure. And in Indiana Jones fits Jedi powers who can travel through time and uh, can move objects with his mind. I guess that's the Jedi power. Yeah. Okay, so you're a Jedi. That's good. Luke Skywalker, or what, who are you going for here? Luke is pretty high up. Uh, I think he's pretty cool. I think Obi-Wan Kenobi in his younger days is pretty cool, too. Oh, yeah, he was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I like it. Obi-Wan, done. And Yoda for his wisdom. Let's throw that in. Oh. Actually, we had, uh, I did have one investor tell me that uh, he was, uh, he's like, Star Wars all the way, I'm Yoda. And I was like, all right, all right. Very direct. I was like, you look more like a Lando. And he's like, no, Yoda. I'm like, okay. <laughs> done. So that's good. Awesome. Well, again, Emmett, I want to thank you very much for your time today. I was awesome, as I always do. Lots of notes, man. Like, can't even write fast enough to keep up. But uh, I'm a note taker, so I kind of like, oh, my God, I got to write this down. But either way, it was fantastic. 
Um, love where we went. Thank you very much for all of that insight. I'm sure the community is going to learn a ton from this. Um, but the way we like to end our show is I like to give you the last word. So anything you want to share to investors or startups, the floor is yours. And again, thank you very much for your time today. JP, thank you very much. Thank you for everybody listening. It's such a pleasure and an honor. Um, JP told me that this eventually reaches 100,000 people. That's crazy. Um, what I did want to leave here is uh, if you are building a business, especially at the seed stage, uh, and you are located in the U.S. and Canada, um, let us know about it. Um, we do read through everything. Uh, we are not able to necessarily follow up with everyone, uh, but we do check everything that everyone sends. Um, easiest way is probably uh, through LinkedIn. We like to see decks. Um, so if somebody sends us a little message saying, let's get on a phone call and let's talk more. Um, if we don't know them, we would like to first see the decks so we can qualify a little bit the fit. Um, and in general, if we do take somebody's time, we try to be as helpful as possible. Uh, the more time we take from somebody in the diligence, we try to do the more for them. So uh, we end up making a few investments a year, but we, in the process, end up learning about a lot more companies and we do something for everyone that we engage with. Um, and uh, we are certainly, uh, if anybody wants to invest in Tower Ventures, we're certainly open to conversations also. Uh, all VC funds have to raise money. So um, it's... Uh, we are in a great place right now, but we were looking forward to building more relationships for the future. Awesome. Well, well said again. Uh, and Emma, thank you. That was awesome. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, we'll, we'll let you know when everything gets all suited up and ready to be shipped out. And uh, we'll promote it and push it over. So you'll be part of that. Uh, but again, thank you very much for, uh, for taking the time today. Awesome, JP. Thank you very much. I will log off here. Talk soon. You bet. Awesome. Well, that was fantastic. Again, man, so many good notes there. You talked about a lot of great things. And I, I really think that when you talk about and you, and you really emphasized on creating those circles, the trust circle or that initial circle of people and building on that on each circle, it's really about communicating and how does a startup build that network. And really, when you build the brand and you're building all these people in, it's not just uh, the, the grouping that you're going after to sell your product. It is the accountants. It's the uh, investors. There's so much that gets tied into this. And he really showed a lot of great value in, in how he broke that down. Personal product, influencers, um, how your advisors work across the business, uh, signaling. You don't want to do the bad signaling where you're raising money, but you're not connecting it to the right people. I think all of those things make a really big difference uh, when you're raising funds. And um, these guys at Tau Ventures, they know what they're doing. They've been doing it for a while. Uh, at, well, uh, and it's been doing this for 20 years. So there's a lot of uh, insights there. And uh, certainly he's done a lot of great things in the, uh, in the entrepreneurial space as well. Uh, so it was great to learn about how they built their company and where they're going. So thank you very much and uh, enjoy. <laughs>